Hello and welcome back to the SPRC podcast. I'm Gala Rexa, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Raymond Center at UCL, and today I'm speaking with Akugo Emajulu, professor of sociology at the University of Warwick. As a political sociologist, her research and writing include racial, gender, and class inequalities in Europe and the United States, women of colors organizing and activism, as well as Black feminism more broadly. Professor Emajulu is the author of Community Development as Micropolitics, Comparing Theories, Policies, and Politics in America and Britain, out with Policy Press, and the co-author with Leah Bassel of Minority Women in Austerity, Survival and Resistance in France and Britain, also out with Policy Press. And her most recent book is Fugitive Feminism, which was published with Silver Press just last year, which we will be discussing today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Akugo. I really appreciate it. And preparing for today's session was so interesting and honestly a joy. So thanks for joining me. Wow, how nice. And what a nice introduction. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. So in the preface to Fugitive Feminism, which is beautifully titled, I think, Lifting My Face to the Sun, you describe fugitive feminism as a, quote, wild proposition, a paradoxical experiment to see whether it is possible to embrace the fugitive's porous, shifting, and unstable identity for a Black feminism of liberation. And on your publisher's website, fugitive feminism is described as a manifesto. And so when I was reading the book, I also sort of felt this radical or experimental energy, I guess. And that's sort of what I wanted to begin our conversation with. So how did you come to write this book in this particular form? What was the broader set of questions you wanted to address? And how did they emerge or maybe also depart from your previous work? So the book came about out of a deep frustration and anger, I think. Because so much of the work that I do is about exploring the struggles of women of color activists in Europe. And particularly at first around issues to do with austerity measures, and then it's expanded to explore migrants' rights as well as anti-fascist activism, particularly in the context of the triumph of the far right, both in electoral politics as well as in everyday life. And I have been doing this work since the 2008 economic crisis. And I always work in a comparative perspective. And so I've been exploring how women of color have been trying to build solidarity with their radical and revolutionary white comrades in socialist, trade unionist, feminist, anti-fascist circles and watching them be demoralized, disenchanted and either actively pushed out of these ostensibly radical spaces or they take their leave because they are not taken seriously. Their analyses of inequality are not taken seriously and their pragmatic suggestions for strategies and tactics for collective action are also dismissed. And, you know, this is the longstanding work I do with my colleague, Leah Vassell. So this isn't particularly new. Anyone who knows anything about Black feminism knows that this is kind of the fate of Black feminists in action in many ways. And I've been thinking a lot about how and why racialized women cannot be heard. And when they articulate their intersectional claims, that is seen as a threat. And there are lots of explanations for this, of which I don't know if we necessarily need to go through here. 
But I think there's a foundational problem of how these activists are not, cannot be seen as equal members in struggle. And really what that means is in a racial polity, (laughs) in a context of the racial hierarchy, not only are they dehumanized, but they're not considered human at all. Because this can be the only explanation, like one of the like strikingly similar findings that I have examined for 15 years in exploring women of color's activism. So regardless of migration context, linguistic context, you name it, it's the same thing. And so what is the explanation for this? And I think part of the explanation is that, in fact, these women are not considered human. So that's really where the book came from, is really trying to take a step back and look at some foundational concerns about what is going on with this empirical data, but also what's going on with the actual lived experiences of these activists. And in order to really think through these ideas, I think required me to take a step back from the usual way that I write. I mean, I I think I kind of pride myself, and even in my academic writing, I'm not one who's using like the $5 word all the time because... I'm also not only speaking to academics, I'm speaking to activists themselves, I'm speaking to policymakers. And so part of that means that one has to write in a very different way anyway. So I was never one to write in a super fancy way anyway, like I'm very committed to writing clearly and directly. But for this book, it was important to even take a shift away from that way of writing, to be more speculative, to be more experimental as a way to think through these issues. And I think as well, because I, you know, I'm a a political sociologist and I'm a qualitative researcher and I'm kind of wading into, you know, this, the subfield of black studies and a lot of theory, which, you know, I can do theory, but I don't do this kind of theory. And so I think it also required something different from me in terms of how I'm writing. Could you say a little bit more about your approach or your different approach to writing in this book? So I'm interested really to hear a little bit about form, I guess. Because it does depart from your earlier academic writing or like academic writing in general. Some of this was because of my editor, the wonderful Sarah Shin, who edited me when I used to write for the Verso blogs. And so she's one of the editors and my publisher at Silver. We have a very good relationship. And so I very much trust her with my writing. And so I think she really did push me to be more experimental and fractured. I think I didn't go far enough for her liking. And it's also just because it's like, I tell her, I, was like, I wasn't trained to write like this. I don't know. So this is probably like the edge of what I'm most comfortable with. And I think she probably could have pushed me further. But like I was writing in the middle of the pandemic and stuff. And I was like, I can't take it. It's too much. It's too much change. I can't take it. So of course, Sarah has heard it all. So anyway. I think that's probably what it was. And I think that was very helpful because the first draft, even the second draft of the book, which was much longer and much more dense and certainly much more academic, even in my open style of academic writing, I think Sarah kind of came in with like a meat cleaver and was, you know, quite brutal in the editing and cutting back. And it took me a while to accept the fracture But I think the fractured and experimental nature of the writing was very helpful to convey my own ambivalence and hesitation. And so you see through the writing an unwillingness to go to certain places, an unwillingness to kind of close down arguments or conversations. But then that also maybe perhaps reflects the liminal state of the fugitive. 
Yeah, let's stay with that figure for a bit longer, because I felt like we have seen this liminal figure of the fugitive or the fugitive feminist in a lot of recent writing and theorizing in feminism, but Black feminism specifically. So, for instance, we met riotous Black girls and queer radicals in Cydia Hartman's work. We are thinking against, I guess, linear time in Lola Olufemi's work and against the fixity of racialized and gendered categories. And then in your work, we encounter Phyllis Wheatley, the first Black American woman to publish a book of poetry, and Fanny Eaton, a Jamaican-born artist model who most of the listeners probably know from the pre-Raphaelite paintings they've seen at the Tate. So could you tell us a bit more about these two Black women and also what they can teach us about the figure, the minor figure of the fugitive, but also about fugitive feminism? I guess if we take a step back and say, if it is indeed the case that, as Hortense Spillers talks about, about how the Black woman's body is ungendered through a process of patriarchal white supremacist domination, then that helps us think through what is possible in terms of what it means to be outside of a stable idea of femininity, of womanhood. Of course, with Hortense Spiller's work and Sylvia Winter and a lot of the key Black radical thinkers that I draw on, of course, poses as a foundational problem. And there has to be a way to evacuate these genocidal ideas of the human so that we can inhabit a humanity on different terms. And I say, yes, of course, but what would it mean if we kind of stay with this idea of being this other subject who is not subjected to these particular kinds of stable identities And what would it mean to embrace this idea of liminality? What would it mean to embrace an idea of ambivalence and hesitation? Not as a way of saying, well, let's reclaim a different way of being a human, but say, no, no, no. What does it mean to stay in that state of insecurity, of instability? And that's really what fugitivity perhaps might offer, at least from how I'm interpreting it, right? Because there's a different kind of politics that is offered if we're not trying to reclaim an idea of the human. And I often say it's like, truly, we want better for ourselves than merely the human. You know, and then the book is about exploring the possibilities of that. So turning to Phyllis Wheatley and Fanny Eaton, I think these two figures point to the problems and the possibilities of the fugitive. Because in Phyllis Wheatley's case, as I talk about in the book, we don't actually know who she is. So Phyllis Wheatley is a pure construction of slavery because Phyllis is named after the slave ship that she was transported on from West Africa to New England. And then Wheatley is the name of her enslavers. And so on a foundational level, we have no idea who this woman is. And so that in a way, so she herself is not a horror, but the name itself demonstrates what's at stake in terms of what has been stripped from her. And yet in this context, what we see and why she's such a fascinating and interesting and inspirational figure is that she was provided with this incredible education and became this beloved poet of her time period. And I think that's really interesting in terms of what it means of what's possible, even within the confines of one would think of pure subjection, 
what is possible in terms of her imagining herself and bringing her own self into being, despite being stripped of her humanity and living in the space of not quite freedom, not quite enslavement, I find fascinating. But of course, you know, I think the story, particularly in American terms, we always forget to tell about Phyllis Wheatley, is that once she was manumitted, she was cast out and died in penury which I think always demonstrates the precarious nature of fugitivity, that failure is always in some way kind of stalking this idea of fugitivity. Now with Fanny Eaton, I think she is a really fascinating example because we know so little about her. And I think she really demonstrates quite well that we have no idea about her interior life We have no idea about who she is outside of literally the white gaze of the pre-Raphaelites, which I find fascinating. And yet we know that she lived a long life. She married. She had like several children. She was doing her thing. I think she moved at the end of her life to the Isle of Wight or something. And so it's like, what's she doing there? Anyway, so like there's something here about the possibility of living a kind of life, even though We know so little about her. And if I was like all fancy, I would then, you know, take Sadia Hartman's idea of critical fabulation and then impose these kinds of like lives and ideas. But that's not really my thing. So I won't do that. I think lots of people expect me to do that. It's like, no, 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 that's her jam. I'm just here reminding you of this incredible historical figure that offers us interesting lessons for thinking about how we might live our lives. Yeah. Also, thank you for that little introduction to your theoretical foundations. I do have more questions about that, but I want to stay with that question of the minor figures or the fugitive just a little bit longer. And I mean, it relates to what you just said about different styles of writing, Sadia Hartman's most specifically speculative fiction, more experimental ways of doing this kind of work, of doing storytelling, of developing counter narratives, etc., And our students at the SPRC, they're very interested in this kind of writing. But I also know you're a sociologist. I'm also trained a sociologist. So there is kind of, I think, an interesting interplay that we can see in your work of doing this in a sociological way, maybe, of like trying new modes of inquiry. So what I would like you to talk a little bit more about, if you want to, is how do you write with and against those categories that we already know we want to kind of get rid of? Because that is what I understand is what fugitive feminism is all about, right? Like the embracing of not knowing where this is going, of the openness, of the possibility of failure, and also, I guess, the discomfort of being in this place. What is kind of the advice, I guess, you would give to students who want to embark on a new mode of inquiry that challenges the categories that we're so attached to in the writing and research? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I guess for me, I don't know, I just, I'm just not a, like writing is a creative process for me and trying to think through and kind of unlock an idea, but I'm not a creative writer, if that makes sense. So I think that's important to make the distinction. And I kind of am on bended knee, especially for fiction writers, because I can't do that. And I'm not pretending to do that. And so how I approach these things is really in that Black feminist tradition of counter storytelling. When you seek to tell a story from the position of the most marginalized, when you are not seeking to occupy the center and understand that there is another story, another perspective, another way of being, another way of doing beyond the white gaze, 
underground, difficult to fathom, hard to find, then that in itself, that move is essential because that starts to break things up. It doesn't solve the problem. Making that shift doesn't mean, oh, okay, everything is fine. And now we're kind of working against categories. But that is a foundational thing about, you know, whose voice matters, whose perspective matters. And so that's always my starting point about who's around the table, who are we listening to, who's being ignored, and what does that mean? What does that tell us about power? Because that's really what my work is about, is about who has it, how do they use it, and what are the outcomes as a result? So that's always, for me, the starting point. And it's to think about, you know, and this is in Bell Hooks's terms about, you know, marginality isn't always a bad thing. Marginality is a space for experimentation. It's a space that can be working with others, i.e. fellow fugitives, can be a space for experimentation, certain kinds of liberation, but it's always precarious. And I think it's one of those things of understanding that it is always precarious is an essential lesson for living. Do you know? Because I just think about, you know, this moment that we're in, we just celebrated 75 years of the NHS. It's on its knees. You know, the entire public sector is on strike. We have the resurgent far right. We have all of these things that at one time were settled questions, well, at least for some people, right? You know, about funding a welfare state, about maybe fascism and public life is not a good thing. All of these things are now debatable again. And so it demonstrates the precarity and the constant need to struggle for the new world. And I think taking that on board, that unfortunately we can never rest because the gains that are won are always in jeopardy. I think it's that idea of jeopardy that I think is so important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also connects to, I think, the question of methodology that you also pose in the book. And specifically, you mention Indigenous scholar Audra Simpson's work as an important interlocutor to think through these questions. And Simpson proposes this idea of a politics of refusal that sort of refers both to our own right to opacity towards the state, towards the researcher, I guess also towards ourselves in some senses, and as a result, our right to be ungovernable or like strategies to be so. And that kind of seems like a companion methodology to the figure of the fugitive feminist or fugitive feminism. But it is also important in more practical terms when we do research with or about those who are always already outside of the category of the human. And you refer to that in the book. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about how you encounter or engage with this politics of refusal in your own empirical work but also maybe in and through the figure of fugitive feminism. So that section of the book is inspired. So I co-wrote an article with my colleague Inez van der Scheer at the University of Amsterdam called Refusing the Politics of Usual. And it's about exploring women of color's activism in London and Amsterdam. And I think from that project, that's part of this project, The Politics of Catastrophe, What was really striking in that research project was how the various activists had enough. They had enough with the coalition building. They had enough with the kind of interracial, interethnic solidarity work. They're like, we are going to do our own thing and we're going to do it underground, out of sight, in order to do the work that matters to us. And particularly in the Amsterdam context with those who are most at risk who were, at that time, the people they were working with, undocumented migrant women. 
And so for me, that was fascinating, right? Because even though I am in a department of sociology and I'm a, but I'm actually a political scientist, right? So anyway, but that's fine. I'm a secret political scientist in sociology. But, you know, political science tells us that there's something wrong with these activists, right? So, you know, why aren't they engaging with institutions? Why aren't they working in coalition? This seems to be a kind of anti-politics, you know, a kind of nihilism to their politics because they refuse to engage with others and in my terms, refuse to be subjected. And so for me, what was fascinating, and again, no one is saying this is new. I'm just saying that these particular activists I'm working with, it was interesting to learn about their strategies and tactics. That tells us something important about, well, first of all, what kind of solidarity is available to these women? And they're saying, no, thank you. But it also tells us about what refusal, this idea, and I think this idea of refusing the politics of usual, that is taken directly from Simpson's work. What she says is in not playing the usual game of politics and what she in her book Mohawk interrupts us, she talks about this idea of rejecting the framework of Canadian citizenship. And in so doing, one regains a sense of sovereignty over oneself but also quite literally over one's land. And I think that's very important whenever we're working with Indigenous scholars. Folks really mean it. Land back is not a, uh, <laughs> not a metaphor. Just like, you know, none of these things are a metaphor. But in order to claim land, one must also claim self-sovereignty. And that's what refusal does. Because when you take on the usual structures of citizenship, you're taking on playing those games of participating in institutions. And she talks about paying taxes and doing all of these things. And in her book, she talks about how, and this is the point about methodology, that part of refusal, if you're serious about this, and especially if you are a scholar who is part of the struggle or is a comrade in struggle, is that you can't be reporting on what folks are doing, like what refusal looks like. It means that you yourself, you can't be reporting and commenting on what people are doing. Because if folks are trying to get free, that's not going to sit well with the powers that be. And I think that's really important. I think that also relates to the question of audience. And in the book, you mentioned the sort of discomfort, maybe, of writing a book like this from within the neoliberal university. And you mentioned this, we're on strike ever since I got to the UK and the working conditions are only deteriorating. But what they also do is kind of produce this figure of the scholar as the individual, as a genius, the single author publishing in high-ranking journals, and so on and so forth. And your book obviously challenges this figure in the way through its citational practice, through its very content. But I think there's also this question of, and I talked to Françoise Vergès on this podcast before, and we also talked about this. Like, how can we be fugitive feminists within this violent institution of the university? I don't know if it's possible. And I'll be honest about that. I don't think it is possible because it requires flight. It requires fleeing from the usual things. It requires a giving up of comfort and stability and security. And me as a fancy professor, look, let's, you know, come on. That's not what's happening here. And I'm the first one to say it. So please, no, no letters, no letters about this. So like, who writes letters? Anyway, so <laughs> I don't know if it's possible, right? And that's why the book is so hesitant, because it is this thing of saying, well, what might be possible and what is required from all of us? All I can do is what I'm doing, because I'm not quitting my job anytime soon. Sorry, folks, I have like bills to pay and all the rest of it. So that's not happening. 
But what can I do to make things less terrible? That's, you know, I think kind of the minimum standard, right? And no one is saying that's necessarily a fugitive practice, but there are things within the university that's possible, of which, you know, for strike action, let's be honest about the deep, deep limitations of what this is and how people really kind of like go to town. They're making a meal out of this as some radical practice. And it's important, but like, let's everyone get a grip on some of this stuff. I say this as a former trade union organizer, so I know of what I speak. There are ways of being in the university that mean that you do not have to be an awful person. Do you know what I mean? And yet this seems to escape many of our colleagues. Part of that means that you present yourself as not having all the answers of wanting to be helpful to your colleagues, wanting to be helpful to your students. And yeah, (laughs) I know that's like, it seems common sense, but somehow is elusive to, to many of us. So I don't pretend in any way that this is a fugitive practice, but what I can do is try to make things less terrible for my colleagues. And in that way, maybe we create possibilities, opportunities for doing things differently. I also think your point about being in the university as a professor, as a lecturer, and in my case, as like an early career scholar, it is so important to say this place is difficult and like we can't really individually change it, but we can make it a better place for those who need it to be a better place for those who it isn't built for. And I think that sounds mundane, but is so crucial. So thank you for pointing that out. As I said earlier, I do have a follow-up theoretical question, Uh which which is something that I'm really curious to learn more about. So basically, it's about your departure from Winter. So basically, if I understand Winter correctly, she suggests reformulating the human as hybrid, as being nature and culture simultaneously to reflect the human condition to be an ongoing process of becoming and of transformation, right? So her counterhumanism is about different ways of living and being in the world and in relation with the world. And in the book, you write that you want to consider what if the human cannot and should not be reclaimed specifically from a woman of color, but even more so a Black women's perspective, right? So I'm curious to just learn more about your different route here. Perhaps put more broadly, how does a fugitive feminism differ from Winter's suggestion of a counterhumanism or her broader project of reclaiming the human? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the departure is to say, what if we do not need this framework of the human? What would that mean? And how would that destabilize, but then also reinvigorate a politics of Black feminism, which is, of course, grounded in a politics of the human? And it really is circling back to saying, well, what would it mean if we cannot stabilize these ideas? Like, what would it mean that we live with ambivalence, that ambivalence is not something that we work through and step away from, but ambivalence is the mode of being? What would it mean to be in that in-between space of living with insecurity, which like quite literally people are living in insecurity at this moment, which is deeply stressful in social and economic terms. Can we not pretend as if that is a good thing, but say, well, what would that mean for our politics if we inject that kind of precarity into thinking about who we are and how we're meant to relate to each other in this world? 
And the stability, or at least a kind of temporary solace and stability comes from our social relations with others. So I think Winter and I, we get to the same place in the end, but I'm not necessarily committed to this idea of the human, because I genuinely do not believe that this fundamentally construction of the Enlightenment, which was not built for not just Black folks, but almost everyone, it is exclusive of almost everyone, and that's the rub, folks, about this idea of the human. What would it mean if we could cast off the long shadow of the Enlightenment away from these ideas of categorization and domination and all of these things? Then what would be left? And then it brings in, because you're an environmental person, I'm not an environmental scholar, because then what would that then do to our relationship to non-human animals and the broader environment, right? So I think there are all these kinds of possibilities if we can somehow get away from this idea, this framework of humanity. But again, this is now, we're now like so far away from where I am most comfortable and like where my camp is. This is why the book is, I'm sure, foundationally like unsatisfying. So I'm like, who can say? I don't know. I'm just asking questions. I'm such a jerk. Honestly, I was like, I have no answers for you. I'm just, you know, I'm I'm the devil's advocate. Just asking questions. So, (laughs) you know, but that kind of, it sits with the content. Like that is part of what you're writing about. So I think the form mirrors your argument or your questions that you're asking. So to come back to maybe where you feel more comfortable is maybe the end of the book. The last sort of chapter, your call, I guess, for community, for care, for finding other fugitives in a shared divestment from this category of the human, but also the sort of precarious and difficult struggle of finding joy in terror. I think that's how you call it. Living in and with and through the circumstances that we're surrounded with. And you also already talked about from your other empirical work with women of color and Black women who are activists, how the kind of coalitional politics mainly fail, especially with white feminists, with labor organizers. So how or if so, how can fugitive feminism be a tool or an invitation maybe for a broader framework of anti-colonial, anti-racist feminist networks of solidarity based on coalition or other modes, I guess, of shared fighting? I guess when people ask me this question, I'm always, I always say, I was like, I'm in a bad place with this. And it's been <laughs> a bad place for several years now. So as I mentioned before, Leah Bassel and I are writing this book called Precarious Solidarity, and we're talking about how the shift needs to be made from thinking about how solidarity or coalitional politics, how women of color fail, and to shifting to understanding how solidarity fails women of color, because solidarity is not possible in a context of a racial polity. And let me just be clear that this is not like an Afro-pessimist view. It's actually about taking seriously the idea of the racial hierarchy. And so given that the usual politics of solidarity, so it does not follow, it's simply because we are all women, that we all necessarily will see each other as equal members of struggle. Fellow feeling, particularly on the left, is not an assumption that can be made. It is something that has to be worked for and worked through. And that requires from us a different way of relating to each other, that simply being a socialist or a trade unionist or a feminist is nowhere and has never been enough for any kind of mutual recognition. And so there is a question here about rethinking ideas of solidarity that go beyond the usual categories, because the categories do not serve the purpose 
this is what my work for 15 years has shown, and it does not do what it claims to do. And so a shift needs to be made both in the ways that we're thinking about solidarity, but then also those categories by which we organize ourselves and think about ideas of collective identity, which then hopefully sparks collective action. And so what that looks like genuinely will vary from place to place, from issue to issue. And, you know, the abolitionist feminists who are popular at the moment, they offer some examples of how that's possible, but there are also lots of problems with that. You know, the longstanding Afro-feminist activism in France gives us some very interesting examples, but all of them are, of course, precarious. And so for me, it's one of those things about where I feel most passionate and interested is trying to link theory to practice. And this is really my departure. And the next step for the next book is to say, here is the challenge of if we are not human, what are we? And what is made possible by not being human? And then saying, okay, there are people literally right now doing this really interesting work. And how can we learn from them? I have some ideas, you know, from some of the most recent work on refusal, on countering loneliness. There's some interesting stuff that folks are doing. And now the question is about trying to link these things together because, you know, the folks who are really engaged in the theoretical practices of fugitivity, it's very interesting, but no one is speaking to anyone, right? Like, and I'm always interested in saying, this is great, but what do people on the ground think? How do they live this or how do they reject this? And for me, that's the most interesting thing that we can have this conversation, but I'm interested in what activists think about these ideas. Thank you so much. So we can look forward to your new projects where you will be thinking these questions further, practically, yes. linking theory and practice. And um, thank you so much for this conversation. I think we reached the end of our time. So thank you so much. Thank you, Gala. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization or follow us on twitter at uco underscore sprc